0: Sugar warning. The following podcast contains material that some may find disturbing and or not suitable for all audiences. Instances of violence, sexual assault, murder, and further loss of life are discussed. We want to make you aware, especially since we mostly want this to be a humorous podcast, but we didn't want to blindside you with heavy or unsuitable material. If you are uncomfortable, feel free to skip to our next episode where standard fare will resume. Sugar warning. The following podcast contains material that some may find disturbing and or not suitable for all audiences. Instances of violence, sexual assault, murder, and further loss of life are discussed. We want to make you aware, especially since we mostly want this to be a humorous podcast, but we didn't want to blindside you with heavy or unsuitable material. If you are uncomfortable, feel free to skip to our next episode where standard fare will resume. Yeah, it's like there's only seven stories you can tell, and one of them's Fern Gully. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Are they in the proper approach? Hello fellow listener. This is Dispatch Ajax. I'm your host, Jake, and this is my co-host.
1: Oh, it's, uh, yeah, yeah I'm skipped. skip. I, skip, skipped. yeah, he he meant to talk but he didn't. So I, I was asleep. The dulcet tones. Jake Nelson lulled me into slumber.
0: It's ASMR Dispatch Ajax. <laughs> Let's have let have a sleepy little podcast today,
1: hmm?
0: just you and me.
1: I think it's interesting that you categorize yourself as a fellow listener, <laughs> since you're the host of the show.
0: We're all listeners, aren't we, folks? Just happy little listeners, just walk around doing the dishes, listening to sleepy little podcasts, huh? Feels good, <laughs> doesn't it?
1: <laughs> it's the Bob Ross podcast.
0: <laughs> now we're gonna do a little bit here. You just do just. Put a happy little bit in there. Oh, it's going to be full of laughs. (laughs) I thought it would be fun, to. Can we actually record a different one? Because that's weird. That was a weird thing I did. There's this boy named Skip. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding. Even the most rudimentary sense of life or death. Good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blind, pale, emotionless face, and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up, For I realized what was living behind those boys' eyes was purely and simply
1: evil. It's incredible, too, because, I mean, we met in college, so uh, the fact that I was a six-year-old and... I always thought it was like a Doogie Howser kind of thing. Um, yeah, right. Like, yeah, which is also a horror. Yeah, well, you uh, know, if mythology. if if
0: Doogie like held a knife to somebody's throat like Chucky and made him like get accepted to college. Speaking of Chucky, did you know that Chucky's
1: slightly based off a of real story? I thought it was just based on that Twilight Zone episode. No, it's there's a uh... Telly Savalas.
0: <laughs> Who loves you, baby?
1: Right. No, that's it, no.
0: That I a- I know it's it's a great Twilight Zone episode. Uh, it's about a great the,
1: episode.
0: Oh, what was that dolly's Especially name?
1: The doll's not the villain. Little Polly Shore. The dolly? <laughs> little Polly Shore. It's Little Polly Shore. Uh, the, the, whistle. the whistle's gonna kill you. <laughs> Child's play. So brain dead. The the dolls just protecting the little girl from the abusive father.
0: Yes. Yeah. Apparently, this is a. There was a a doll in the early 1900s that was supposedly haunted, and all the people who received the doll uh, would wind up with grisly deaths. And then they mm. they stopped. They took it away, and it's been locked up ever since. <laughs> took
1: it to doll jail. <laughs> that doll's
0: what we call in the prison system a bitch.
1: <laughs> so Roger Ebert wrote this too, right? Is that
0: one day, in a fit of rage, he cut out the bitch's eyes,
1: <laughs> like a doll's <laughs> eyes. Ah, uh, the great circle of doll horror life: Jaws, to Halloween, to Twilight Zone, to Chucky.
0: Um, so I married an axe murderer thrown in there.
1: Mm, that's right. Yep, yep. This is the cycle of life. Where's Sultan John when you need him? <laughs> you know, I say that constantly. Well, so it occurred to me that, uh, you know, and not by me, I mean, everyone who's ever seen a horror movie, that they all share similar tropes. A lot of tropes are era specific. Um, You know, you had the 50s era tropes and the 70s era tropes and the 80s and 90s era tropes, which are all vastly different from each other. But a lot of them share common ancestry. So we thought we'd uh, break down. This is Jake, by the way. Wait. Uh, You did never. No, you're, you're Skip. You're Skip talking. I'm Jake. You said my name, though. Yeah, but you're evil. That's why you need to know. I mean, you have to have a protagonist and an oh, antagonist, yeah. right? Yeah, that's... Uh, uh-uh. that's. I'm skipping. This is the shape. I'm the final girl in this episode. So we can explore some of the uh, origins of some of these tropes, because slashes obviously were a thing long before Halloween, but Halloween kind of like perfected the model, I guess you could say. Well, there's, I think,
0: taking some of those elements from other films and cementing them to then that everything is built off of since kind of connecting the dots in a lot of ways. Taking stuff, you know, that you saw in Giallo horror films of the of Italy in the in the sixties and then mm-hmm. you know, your peeping Tom and your psycho and stuff from like Black Christmas or Texas Chainsaw, The mm-hmm. Town That Dreaded Sundown, and then kind of mm-hmm.
1: solidifying them and that it, it became much more palatable and marketable. If you're a certain age, especially, you, you kind of intuitively get it. The crazy thing, I think, with a lot of these horror tropes that span a, a diverse number and type of film actually come from not only real events, but a very limited number of real events. And they're staying power. And they're like, I think sometimes it's coincidental because it plays on fears that we have as a society. And sometimes it's it comes from the fact that these were real events, whether you realize it or not. Because it's sort of in like the collective unconscious, the zeitgeist of, the, of society. Specifically, we discussed the film The Town that Dreaded Sundown, which is a slasher film technically, but it's based on a true story. The Texarkana Moonlight murder, which were real and kind of created the slasher character that we know, like Michael Myers or Jason. It was based on an actual serial killing spree in the late 1940s, where a killer wore a mask, had sort of like a persona that was created by the media and killed people in really, really brutal ways that were kind of copied later by people like Son of Sam, Ted Bundy to a certain extent. So the perpetrator of the Moonlight Murders was a man known as the Phantom Killer. and He attacked at least eight people within 10 weeks, and he killed five of them. The first two victims he attacked got away. Now, the interesting thing about this to me is We all know the trope of it's the people that transgress whatever moral institutions we have are usually the ones that die, right? So if you have sex in a movie, you die. If you're out too late, you die. Alcohol or drug use? Sure. Usually that means you're doomed. If you're making uh, fake passports? Yeah, fake vaccine passports. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, could we
0: do a slasher film where we're just killing anti-vaxxers?
1: Yeah, totally. There was this weird switchover beforehand... And there are too many horror tropes for us to go into completely in this episode, but some of the main ones we're sticking with are... If you, if you look back, you think about a movie like um, The Blob, for instance. Yes. Which is a, you know, popcorn, big group, big, horrible popcorn flag. I mean, not horrible, horrifying <laughs> popcorn flag. <laughs> it was atrocious. It's actually a great movie. <laughs> well, well, then you have the sequel, the remake. Boy. Oof. um, It's one of the first times that you actually have teenagers as the main... Characters, Because before that, you had like sci-fi horror monster movies and things like that. And usually the adults, a scientist, or mm-hmm.
0: you look at something like uh, the, the thing from another world, you know, them. Invasion of the Body
1: Snatchers. Uh, invasion of the Body Snatchers. Day of the Triffids. Yeah, it's all adults and scientists usually, right? Because they're the only ones who explain what's going on. But the blob is one of the first times that you actually see teenagers as like the main protagonists. They're the only ones who know what's going on it's the adults who won't listen to them because that's essentially about the time when teenagers became a thing. Yeah. Before a certain era, you were a kid or you were an adult. That's it. There's no in between. And then when teenagers became a demographic, and especially after World War II, when they became a demographic, that had money to mm-hmm. spend and started actually pushing pop culture, like music and fashion, mm-hmm. basically spending money and creating the cultural zeitgeist that's when you see a shift. All oh, the the 50s teenager stuff, like the, uh, you know, Rebel without a Cause era, like, you know, we're teens and we're whatever, screw society. And then, you know, that, of course, becoming like part of a moral panic that causes the movies to reflect why they should be punished for the things that they do. That ironic Cold War thing where it was screw communism. Like, oh, that's all about fitting in and conformity. <laughs> but then, like, everything that America did was about fitting in and conformity. <laughs> and brainwashing and the entire decade of the 50s. Everyone could be an individual,
0: and as far as Leave it to Beaver would allow it.
1: Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, look at those hygiene films and, like, the film reels about etiquette. That's some straight-up brainwashing, the kind of thing that they would accuse the Soviet Union of doing. So then you have you have teenagers for the first time being, like, not just side characters or reactionary characters, but actually the main characters, starting around the blob, which is in '58. Then, even those sci-fi horror monster movies before that, you always had kids making out in a car, left vulnerable to attack from this whatever monster that came out of the woods or whatever. That was a trope that was used quite often and it's still parodied today to whatever degree, but that wasn't really a contemporary narrative then. But that trope appeared in films, but the reason it stuck in horror movies was because of an actual case of serial murder in the Moonlight Murders, because most of the Phantom Killers' kills took place in people's cars, Lover's Lane type murders, where two teenagers or young people in general and their companions parked to make out or whatever, and of course then are attacked. In the case of the first two victims, they were not killed, they actually lived, but that's what sets the stage for that. And of course, then people kind of run with that and turn it into a moral panic sticking point, which America always does for some idiot reason, like with sex or drugs or whatever they think Satanism actually is, because <laughs> it's not really a thing. There really are no Satanists. They're just kind of libertarians. Well,
0: you, well hmm.
1: there are Satanists. There are no but actual... Yeah, but not, not like, like... really that really believe the dark no, war well, whatever. No, well...
0: I'm sure there are some that see it as more than just a figurehead of their cultural idealism. The, like, the Satanists who are, like, kidnapping kids and, like, you know, the reason for satanic panic in the 70s, that's that's not a thing.
1: In the 80s, yeah. No, it never happened. Other than the None current Democratic happened. Party,
0: obviously, you know.
1: Of course, yeah. obviously. Because uh, you know, I've read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, so obviously I know it's true. <laughs> Basically, between February twenty second, nineteen forty six, and May third, nineteen forty six, there was a series of attacks by the Phantom Killer. First two victims, Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry, lived. All right, I just have
0: Mary Larry.
1: M a r y L a r e y. Who
0: who would do that to a child?
1: I know it's terrible. Mary Larry. That's one of my things like I always said. If we had a kid, we could never name it with a vowel that sounded like Y. Because, like, my mom, her name was Terry. She was Teresa. And so she started going by TJ when she married my father because it'd be Terry Harvey. <laughs> and that sounds awful. It's not
0: good. But the the true rhyming no. of, a, of a name, that's you just can't do that.
1: Can't do that. You don't do, like, no. Jake Lake, you know, or, or Barry Harry. Actually, that sounds kind of cool. Jake Lake kind of sounds cool, <laughs> uh, like a, a hardboiled detective. Uh,
0: Jake Lake took you to the lake, and uh, he he had his way with you.
1: Well, see, if you're like hanging out with a dude named Jake Lake, do not go to the lake with him. That's what I'm saying. Because either he's really, really lame, he's obsessed with the lake because that's his name, or he's going to kill you. I mean, there's no there's two there's no two ways about but,
0: it. But I mean, he's he's very attractive, so maybe it's worth it either way. <laughs>
1: projecting much um uh, he's also the star of the football team and he gets really good grades <laughs> he's really hunky and everyone likes him. he's got a lot of friends and his pants are really tight and it's nice <laughs> <laughs> we're getting into different territory with that so uh those two survived and their their account is a horrible it's a it's a really harrowing tale it's really awful it involves sexual assault and attempted murder um if I remember right, Jimmy Hollis suffered multiple skull fractures and was Mm. hospitalized for weeks. The first actual double murder was Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore four weeks later. Then there was a series of successive ones, but most of them were either in a car or they were, a couple of them were in their houses. And when he started escalating, but This is where you start to see a lot of these tropes take shape. So a lot of the whole like moral panic stuff about teenagers or young people in cars, like possibly doing something unsavory, being killed as a result, starts to take shape because of these events. And then other tropes based on how these murders escalated started to form. One of the double murders, or at least attempted murders from Moonlight Murders, happened on uh, Friday, May 3rd, 1946, shortly before 9 p.m. Virgil Starks, a blue-collar dude who had a uh, 500-acre farm in Texarkana, sat after work listening to the radio. While his wife is in her bedroom lying on the bed in her nightgown, she heard something in the backyard and asked Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading the newspaper, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window three feet away. So he stalked them outside their window, saw their routine, and planned a murder accordingly. Katie didn't hear the gunshots, but she did hear the sound of breaking glass because it would have been broke plate glass back then. She thought that Virgil had dropped something, so she went to investigate. When she came into the doorway of the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair. Yeah, she saw blood, ran to him and lifted up his head and then realized he was already dead. The second shot killed him instantly. Hmm. And they only had a hand crank phone So she's trying to charge the phone so that she can call the police, and she only gets two cranks in before she's shot twice in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited her left ear. The other went in just below her lip, broke her jaw, knocked out several teeth, and then lodged under her tongue. She managed to get to her feet, got a gun. Wow. Yeah, managed to run and find a gun, but couldn't defend herself because... She had too much blood in her eyes. Which is rough. Yeah. So then she hears the screen on the back porch door being torn open by the killer. She assumed she was going to die. So she did her best to stagger to her bedroom to leave a note so that someone would know what happened. So the killer ran back to the the back of the house and made his way up the stairs into the side screen porch and then through the back door. She heard him coming through the kitchen window so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down the hallway, into another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door. And we know all of this, not just from the story, but she left a trail of blood through the entire house, which was easy to follow. Yeah. Uh... Oh, in one account, it was referred to as a virtual river of blood and teeth. Huh. That's fun. So she was barefoot and... And still in her nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house, but no one was home. So she ran 50 more yards to a neighbor's house. He finally entered the door. She said, Virgil's dead, and then collapsed. The neighbor shot his rifle into the air to get everyone's attention, and then another neighbor went to get his car, and the whole family took Katie to the hospital, and then she was so delirious that and had been shot in the mouth she felt guilty for for needing help and gave one of her gold teeth to her rescuers because in her delirium thought that that would be appropriate payment okay we got a lot going on here. so like she had lost a lot of blood but her heart rate apparently remained normal and she was thankfully stabilized in the hospital and was and was questioned by the sheriff of course the newspapers print a story The headline was Murder Rock City Again, Farmer Slain, Wife Wounded. The sheriff came back and once again tried to get more information, and she discounted almost everything that was written in the article because it was just clickbait garbage. Apparently, they had printed that her husband, Virgil, had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row stalking them, kind of like Michael does in Halloween with Lori. But apparently that wasn't true. You just see from this one instance... That a lot of these tropes that you will see in movies again and again and again, kind of come from one actual event. An event that was so crazy that you could pull a dozen different tropes. What are the odds of all of this happening, right? You start putting these different tropes together during the moral panic of the conservative era in the 1980s. Probably in the late 70s, end of the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Young people making out in their car, stalked by some serial slasher. Uh, you know, the attempted murder, the stalking with their house. And then the 80s galvanizes this. Well, this happened because they were doing something immoral. They were doing something that goes against social norms by having sex outside of marriage or whatever. You put these things together as what I think society thinks is cautionary tales about morality, but in fact had nothing to do with each other or anything else. One person created these crazy circumstances. It's kind of a an Ouroboros of reality and fiction, mm-hmm. you know, because you have that
0: happen, which then leads to stories about it, which then leads to urban legends, which then bleeds into other people, you know, like a Son of Sam doing a similar kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, or um, Bundy. Um, although Bundy didn't go up to people's cars and kill them, stalk people in their houses. He did it at that Sorority House in Florida. That version isn't necessarily what he's known for. Much more of a a smooth criminal, I think, is the idea of Ted Bundy, mm. rather than a slasher vibe.
1: Which is funny, because like, is, in reality. But yeah, his archetype isn't that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the version like uh, a Son of Sam or uh, a Zodiac Killer, those are seen, I think, differently than a uh, Ted Bundy is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of have those, and those lead to... More things in pop culture, which then, you know, it's kind of the um, the scream line. Don't blame the movies. Uh, movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative.
1: Great line. It's a fascinating thing.
0: It is. That's why both the real cases and the fictional cases pull us into them. You know, the, mm-hmm. the salacious nature of the outline of sex, you know, being imprinted on them. The ability for anybody to be attacked by these driven maniacs. Everyone can put themselves into that situation, which is much different than a, a giant ant coming after you.
1: <laughs> when I was living in Oregon, walking in Starbucks one day, I actually saw a guy that had a truck with a vanity license plate that said Bundy. An Oregon license plate that says Bundy? Seems a little tone deaf, doesn't it? I mean... One would think. Because it's either Ted Bundy, or it's that crazy separatist family. Oh, Yeah. Either way, that's not a good thing to have. (laughs) In this vein, that helped contribute to this trope, another actual event that inspired a lot of different stuff. I have a personal tie to this because I I lived where this happened for 15 years. I know people that live on this street, and you'd be surprised at how many tropes come from the murder of Janet Christman. Uh, Janet Christman was born in March 1936 in Boonville, Missouri, closer to the river where the University of Missouri is. Janet's parents owned Ernie's Cafe, where you have eaten with me, right next to the comic book store. Oh, the, um, the, the diner, right? Yep. Fascinating. Yeah, so that's a weird one. Poor Janet was a babysitter. On the night of March 18th, 1950, there was a bad storm with heavy wind and rain and sleet. Temperatures had dropped to the mid-twenties, and not a lot of people were going out, but there was an eighth grade party that night. Janet didn't go because someone had called her family asking for her to babysit a three-year-old, the son of Mr. and Mrs. Ed Romack. She told everyone she needed the money to make the last payments on a suit that she had bought for Easter. And their home was on Stewart, which at that point was sort of like on the city limit line, but now it's basically right downtown. Not right downtown, but close to downtown. Ed Romack, who was leaving to go play cards at 7.50 p.m., showed Janet the loaded shotgun that he kept by his front door and instructed her on how to use it if something ever happened. And basically, it was just to answer the door with it. Greg, the three-year-old she was watching, slept with the radio turned on so he would not have heard anything that was about to happen. Now, in the middle of the night, Officer Ray McCowan, who was on duty uh, with the Columbia PD, answered a phone call, and the only words that came out... In screaming panic were come quick he tried to get more information but the line was cut and all he got was a dial tone and he knew that it was a prank based on the terror in her voice so he waited for the phone to ring again because he didn't have any way to trace where it came from or who it was so all he could do was wait to hopefully call it back soon after that the Romacs called from the moon valley villa where she her husband and the Mueller's were all playing cards just to check on Janet and see how the night went, but nobody answered. But it was late, so they weren't worried about it, presuming that she had just fallen asleep. They stayed there for a few more hours, and about 1.35 a.m., they returned home, noticed that the porch light was still on, and the front window blinds were wide open, which was unusual and kind of goes against the instructions that they had given her. Ed tried to unlock the door, but realized it was already unlocked. That's where they found 13-year-old Janet Chrisman on the floor of the living room in a pool of blood. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered. She had a head wound from a blunt instrument and multiple puncture wounds from a mechanical pencil, plus a cord from an electric iron that had been snipped with a pair of scissors around her neck as a garrote. And a few feet away, they could see the phone dangling off the hook. So, Ed Romack called the police, and the police came out. So Janet Chrisman, she only weighed about 135 pounds, and police knew immediately that she had put up a real fight. They could find evidence of a struggle that went from the kitchen to the hallway and to the living room in front of the house. There were wounds on both sides of her head, including puncture marks that appeared to have been made by mechanical pencil, and her face appeared to have been scratched. And the sheriff's deputy who investigated the scene thought that things were a little convenient because it was strange that she'd been killed with an instrument that was hidden in the house. The iron where the cord was cut from wasn't in plain sight, and the gun was still by the front door. So they suspected whoever it was likely knew the house, knew the family, knew Janet Christman, and knew the routine that they used when they left the house. It seems that Whoever killed her knew she would be there, alone. Or knew that that child was going to be asleep with the radio on. And since she was instructed very specifically to only answer the door with the shotgun, which hadn't been touched, either she knew the person who had knocked on the front door, or that person didn't go to the front door and distracted her and was somehow able to unlock the front door and get in without a struggle. Because the door was not broken, the lock wasn't broken, it was unlocked. But the shotgun was still there, untouched. So, the killer was familiar with the entire situation, which means it was somebody that the family most likely knew, and knew intimately. Also disturbingly, there had been another similar murder in 1946. It was a bad year. Two blocks away from the Romac home a girl named uh, Mary Lou Jenkins was strangled with an extension cord.
0: They didn't think that was similar? They didn't put those two and two together?
1: Now, CPD, in all of their glorious wisdom that stands to this day, did charge a black janitor at the university who was uh, mentally challenged, a Q about 70. They coerced a confession from him, prosecuted him, he recanted, They refused to retract it, and he was executed. So, that's fun. What was his name? Uh, Floyd Cochran. Floyd Cochran. They blamed it on Floyd Cochran.
0: And he'd done both killings.
1: And basically, so there had been reports of P.P. Tom incidents, a string of rapes, all in that just couple block radius over that four year span between 46 and 50. They blamed it all on Floyd Cochran. So, mm. everyone involved in the cold case now, obviously, it's reopened as a cold case. and You know, it has been for a long time because it was very obvious that that man committed no crime.
0: It was piling on the tragedy.
1: Even though they had blamed the whole thing on, at least the prosecutor had blamed the whole thing on Floyd Cochran, the police had focused on another suspect, Robert Mueller. Weird. <laughs> Uh, i'm surprised this hasn't come up in q on circles <laughs> <laughs> this could be mueller i don't really know but it's it's spelled the same as robert Mueller. mueller mueller he was actually a family friend and he'd been into the house on multiple occasions um according to testimony that was introduced to a grand jury later on uh, mrs romack said that she felt frightened and uncomfortable around Mueller and said he had run his hand across her dress two days before when they were alone. Basically, copped a feel. Right. And Ed Romack also testified that Mueller had once convinced him that he admired Crispin's, quote, well-developed form.
0: Hmm. That's what all non-creepy people say.
1: Right. So, also, uh, the night of her murder, he had called the Romacks' house asking janet to babysit for him but they they told him that she was babysitting at the romax so he knew where she would be that she'd be alone what house it was and the layout of the house Uh. yeah yeah and then he also testified in front of a grand jury that Mueller at one point said to him i might have done it and then forgot about it what does that mean (laughs) Oh, <laughs> pretty damning to me and yet they convicted and executed another man <sighs> on top of that muller carried a mechanical pencil that had a round end that generally matched the puncture wound on Chrisman's head come on yeah um but then there was a bunch of uh, legal stuff they had given him a lie detector test without alerting his attorney so that was problematic they didn't have an arrest warrant for him but they still took him into custody and then Took him to Jeff City to get the lie detector test, which that's also a problem uh, because he was under the impression he was under arrest. Um, Yeah. And on May 24th, the grand jury did not return an indictment. Instead, they just criticized the police and the sheriff's departments for not working together. So uh, the report said, quote, in the opinion of the grand jurors, much of the effort expended has been wasted and dissipated because of the failure to correlate the information available. So basically, they knew better and they still f***ed it up. It goes on to say that it blames, quote, petty jealousies and it fueled a, a, quote, almost complete lack of cooperation between various law enforcement agencies. So. That's good. So immediately afterward, Mueller joined the Air Force and moved away. He tried to sue the uh, sheriffs and police departments for violating his civil rights, but lost the case and died a free man in 2006 at the age of 83. Yeah, it's a terrible story. It's a really, 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 really horrible story. And obviously nothing will ever come of it. They will never figure it out, I'm sure, since everyone involved is dead but yeah but this this horrible and tragic event that's so brutal and gruesome you can see where the horror tropes come from here yeah so, i mean that's that's a distinct starting point
0: for the kind of the legend of the the babysitter mm-hmm. you know being attacked you know oftentimes stalked and toyed with by the perpetrator which you've seen in many things like black christmas or the sitter true. or true Distinctly, when a stranger calls in 1979, um, that's when you get you know the have you have you checked on the children? The call is coming from inside the house, inside the house, yeah. yeah. Which is a natural evolution of that, but you know a lot of those things, it's often again some roving sociopath who's a just out or... to yeah, yeah, it's out to to kill for for killing's sake. But unlike you know most actual human tragedies it's mostly people that they know but it's a terrifying yep. concept because it's it's usually a uh, again a babysitter tends to be you know someone a a teenage or you know in their young twenties uh, mm-hmm. usually alone by themselves in a, a somewhat unfamiliar place they are put in the possession and protective uh, stance of even younger innocents mm-hmm. um, so it's it's an easy target for older, stronger people to attack and play with. And it's easy to, to put yourself in that spot, because we've all, again, been in a similar situation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and of course, yeah, this inspired directly all of those tropes. But also, that's the basically the story of Laurie Strode in Halloween. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She didn't go out. She was asked to babysit. She was being stalked by a guy. Who figured out the routine, where she was going to be. Um, I mean, it's just Lori, but Lori happened to live. That's the only real difference there. Um, so, I mean, it's like the, it's kind of the archetypal story in that sense. Like almost all slashers, like in amalgamation with other tropes come from this one story. And it's, it's really sad. Um, it happened. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons it still rings true to people today. It still feeds into these primal fears because, you know, whether they consciously know, know that it was real or not they could see how it could be and and it's you get a character a killer in a horror movie that's something like the shape michael myers or he's like jason Voorhees. he's it's usually because they can't imagine real people doing this uh, and it has to be something sort of disembodied and like a mm-hmm. force of nature that because how, i think how that's one person... reason
0: why you you put the, the mask on them it takes away any humanity that they have
1: right Which is another interesting point because like the reason that the mask thing evolved was because of the phantom killer who wore a mask during these killings. And yet the reason it stuck was for that reason. There's a real human tendency to dehumanize a killer like that. Putting a mask on them is easier for them to deal with. It's scary. It's even more scary than a real person. But at the same time, they're so scared that it could be a real person. They have to detach like that. It comes from a real place. <laughs> I mean, and, and yeah, but yeah, that's a, that's a heavy one. Was, but uh, those real
0: events lead to urban legends, which then lead to tropes mm-hmm. from those because they they stick with you,
1: which brings me to another interesting one. Another one that inspired a huge swath of tropes um, is, of course, the serial murder. Well, I don't even say serial murders. The crimes of Ed Gein. Hmm. it's a good way to put it. Right, because there's a good chance he was not a serial killer, but everyone puts him on that shelf. But he really wasn't, though.
0: He's just kind of a creep. It's become kind of a ubiquitous term for these horrific human monsters. But whether these people actually never killed anyone, like a Charles Manson... You know, whether they killed someone all at once. You know, like a lot of people in a certain setting, those are mass murders. Those don't count. But a lot of people are... You, you just you just labeled those things because you're of such deviance and such atrocity.
1: And then you have spree killers, which were very different. Uh-huh. A completely different thing. It's the difference between, like, BTK and... I don't know, like, um... Bonnie and Clyde, you know, I mean, like, which are, those are completely different tropes, but they're they're a thing, you know, and other people mm-hmm. have done the same thing. Of course, Ed Gein, a shockingly large number of horror tropes came from Ed Gein, who was not even a serial killer. He admitted to killing two women, but in actuality, he was a grave robber, a mama's boy, and... Uh, insert joke there, I guess. Right, exactly. Uh, mm. I, he was well, I mean, we can We need to get into it. I mean, if we're talking about Ed, necrophile, I think, kind of, maybe. <sighs> was that more ritualistic than it was sexual? I, I'm not really sure. It, it's tough. Then you're getting into the psychology that's
0: behind the what he's doing and why he's doing it. I, it's how how
1: can you truly explain? Yeah, and so. So the evidence of Gein's crimes were so much more horrific than the actual crimes he committed that I think people had a hard time believing he wasn't a serial killer, or at least what we would call later a serial killer. In 1957, hardware store owner Bernice Warden went missing. And the last person that was reported uh, seen with her was Ed Gein. If I remember it, he was like a local handyman, just did odd jobs and, and, and gigs for money. So he was the main suspect, and he was arrested. And when authorities searched his house, they not only found Bernice Warden decapitated, but a smorgasbord of human remains, manipulated and adorned ritualistically, including skulls as bedposts, trash cans, and chair cushions made of human flesh, nine preserved vulvas, in a shoebox, leggings made from legs, uh, a belt made out of nipples, and face masks made from female corpses. Now, he did admit during questioning to murdering Bernice Warden and bar owner Mary Hogan, who he killed in 1954. But it turns out the rest of the body parts were actually just stolen corpses from local cemeteries. His ultimate goal in this whole exercise was to make a bodysuit made of human flesh to resemble his mother so he could once again be inside his dead mother. Uh, mark me down for a no, please? Edgate wasn't actually a serial killer by any real definition, but his, his crimes inspired, well, there's a controversy about whether or not it inspired Psycho directly. Because the novelist who wrote the book actually lived only 35 miles from Ed Gein, but he had nearly completed the book when Gein's murders came to light. He was noted as saying that he was shocked at how closely his character resembled Ed Gein. Which, I mean, come on. (laughs) I mean, I'm just going to say it inspired Psycho. We'll leave that for people to decide, but... Uh, It also became the foundation for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs, uh, a movie called Three on a Meat Hook, which is exactly how it sounds, Deranged, and a Cormac McCarthy book, Child of God.
0: So the true horrors of this world come not only from the waking moments, but also from the unknown terrors in the dark. Such Mm -hmm. it was for Wes Craven, who was inspired to create the killer nightmare of Freddy Krueger, and Nightmare on Elm Street by all-too-real and all-too-deadly experiences. He had heard stories of refugees in the 1970s, escaping the genocide of the Killing Fields. A particular story that caught his attention was that of a young Cambodian man who had come to America with his family. He was plagued by nightmares and PTSD. He was suffering such vivid night terrors that he refused to sleep. He told his parents he was afraid that if he slept, the thing in his nightmares chasing him would get him. He was assured that the nightmares were not that unusual and he shouldn't be so terrified. But he didn't buy that, and he started staying up, refusing to sleep. His family and doctor were concerned and began to give him sleeping pills to induce slumber. He had a coffee pot in his room to stay awake, and nobody knew quite what to do. Finally, one day, he was watching TV with his family and he fell asleep on the couch they saw him sleep, let out a sigh brought him up to his room put him to bed pleased that he had finally gone into the night unfortunately sleep would take him in all too real a way soon thereafter they heard his screams they found him thrashing his bed they ran to call for the ambulance but by the time they got to him he had died he was a youngster having visions of a horror that of his time in Cambodia this particular case came from an article in Los Angeles Times which served as some of the original source material for Wes Craven that article noted that 104 men with an average age of 33 had mysteriously died in their sleep now this all comes from an outbreak during the 70s and 80s, of a syndrome that affected Southeast Asians, uh, a lot of them were refugees um, trying to.
1: It's escape. called the CIA.
0: <laughs> It'll get you. Unfortunately, a lot of them they weren't able to worship properly due to the guerrilla war in Laos with the United States. Uh, the Hmong people, an ethnic group which mainly lives in southern China, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, and Myanmar, they believe that if they did not worship properly and perform the proper spiritual rights, the ancestors of the, and spirits of the village wouldn't be there to protect them in their sleep, and thus evil spirits would be able to attack them. These attacks induced a nightmare that leads to sleep paralysis, and they would feel a great weight on their chest. Some of these people who were spread out over the United States, they wanted to get a shaman who would come and protect them, but many of them never had access to the shaman.
1: That's why we need shaman care for all. <laughs> People shouldn't pay
0: for shamanic care. It should be for everyone. <laughs> Among people believed that rejecting the role of becoming shamans and helping them into
1: sleep, that they are... No. Eh, uh, f*** that line. I'm um, just going to delete that. I thought you said Atomic Shamans, which is like the greatest name for a band we could. Oh, ever Oh, Atomic
0: out. Shamans is killer.
1: Headlighting Dispatch Ajax. <laughs> In a
0: medical journal, an author suggested that the Hmong people didn't die by their own beliefs in the spiritual world, otherwise known as uh, nocturnal pressing spirit attacks. There are different ways of saying this all throughout Southern Asia. In Indonesia, it's a uh, diguton, which translates to pressed on in English. In China, they have the bai gui ya, which translates to being crushed by a ghost. In the Dutch, it's pronounced nakmeri. With nightmare but also the Mary comes from the middle Dutch mare, an incubus who lies on people's chest, suffocating them mm-hmm. this phenomenon is also known among people of Laos, who say that malign spirits pronounce da chua," and they also take the form of a jealous woman and would sit on people now, a lot of this is folklore but unfortunately there is an actual physical thing that is killing these people Sudden unexplained nocturnal death syndrome, or SONS. Yeah, it's also considered sudden arrhythmic death syndrome, or SADS. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's I what they call them. Know. This syndrome was reported in the Southeast Asian countries. The condition could often be recognized by people falling asleep, making loud groans, and showing signs of difficulty in breathing or labored respiration, bo- before becoming rigid and dying just out of nowhere Hmm. this happens mostly in people of asian descent particularly japanese and southeast asian heritage most acutely of the homong peoples it also occurs eight to ten times more often in men than women one of these versions of this sads or sons is uh called brugada syndrome and brugada syndrome is actually a genetic defect ...that is found in Hamong and other South Asian people. It is a malfunction of the sodium channels within the heart muscle cells... Um, ...which leads to abnormal heart rhythms and hearts just stopping. That is a believed version, a cause of some of these suns and sads... ...but honestly, no one really knows. And it's it seems to have been a thing that continues to happen you can not get medication for and that doctors can see you for but apparently post 70s and 80s a lot of people coming from Cambodia they would have these nightmares that either would help lead to the suns or be the cause of it Um, so these Mm. true horrors affecting these people escaping those horrors but taking their life when they're at their most vulnerable point which I think is something that Wes really dug into and used for Freddy Krueger the idea of just you know when you're asleep you have no defenses and uh, unfortunately it was these real-life deaths that sparked his his brain with that
1: so it sounds like that it's a combination of the centuries-old phenomenon of uh, sleep paralysis succubus incubus alien abduction Mm -hmm. shadow people sometimes and a genetic disorder sort of mixing with folklore
0: Yes. The research on that, it tends to kind of focus more on one or the other, but I think it's a it's a combining of the two where it's the gray in between that's, you know, one sure. leading to the other or
1: <laughs> it's the grays in between, yeah.
0: Oh god, I hope it's not the grays.
1: <laughs> Jake, there's a fire in the sky, did you know?
0: <laughs> oh, I don't wanna.
1: We're coming up on a communion buddy.
0: <laughs> I don't want to believe. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but it's funny that like you go from that to um, a child molester with razor hands.
0: <laughs> well, I mean it's it's taking like a you know just one idea. So there's there's an, a, an example that I did that I looked into that I didn't really get into. So the original writer of Scream came up with the concept. He wrote a 16 page draft because he had seen this serial killer in Florida killing college students. Doing some awful things to them, like he would torture them, rape them. One woman, he did that, left, thought he forgot his wallet. So he went back to the woman's apartment, decided to cut her head off, put it on a mirror looking at her body. He had read these stories and then he had went up to write and he saw that his window was open and he was like, oh, what if someone got in? He wrote a short little bit, which is essentially the first bit of the film of Scream. Mm-hmm. That then got turned into a bigger film that was all a discussion on the tropes of horror films, right, right? But it didn't start like that at all. Yeah, I mean, it that all came later, and actually was a lot in the scripts because a lot of people like they think, oh, this is kind of Wes Craven's idea. A lot of other people were given that option to sh-
1: to make that movie, and they just didn't get it before. It... <laughs> a lot of people still to this day don't get it. <laughs> yeah. That's why Scary Movie exists. Which was
0: the name of Scream originally. Oh no!
1: It's so meta that they don't even know how meta they are.
0: <laughs> yeah, these real life events that just kind of spark one line of thought and that can go in a completely different direction. Honestly, it's it's probably much better that Wes decided to do this weird child molester with knives her fingers to, you know, mm-hmm. fights people in their dreams. Other than the horrors of genocide of a uh, displaced people,
1: yeah, it's yeah. If you if you want to watch a good a good uh, take on that, watch The Terror season two. You know, I haven't seen The Terror. I liked season one. I liked that one a lot. I actually thought it ended better than season one. Okay, it's t- it takes place in the Japanese internment camps in oh, World War Two. Really? II. Yeah, oh. it's got George Takei in it, which is awesome. It's all about, um, not an Oni, but a different kind of ghost. Fascinating. No, I'll
0: have to check that out. Yeah, I like season one. Talk about a show that nobody talks about.
1: Most likely, an asteroid that crashed billions of years ago. It's finally thawed out, and it's attacked a research team in Antarctica.
0: (laughs) Finally. you, researchers.
1: So the killer clown thing, and fear of clowns in general, uh, has been a trope. Um, But really, it's it's a modern trope, but one that has really old roots that are kind of universal. It just kind of galvanized in recent years for various reasons. Basically, since forever, the idea of a clown or a fool or a jester, they've been in society since we've had society. They're kind of a way of creating satire and parody and talking about in a humorous way, the ills of society or the things that are going on without breaking these social mores that exist. So they get away with stuff. You know, They get away with critique. They get away with parody. They get away with slapstick violence and things that m- normal humans wouldn't be able to. This comes from a, an author named Wolfgang Zucker. He points out that a clown's appearance and the cultural depictions of demons and other infernal creatures Like the chalk white face in which the eyes almost disappear, the mouth enlarged to ghoulish size. Uh, It looks like the mask of death. So you've got that visually. And then a professor of psychology, uh, Joseph Derwin at California State University, Northridge, pointed out that young children are very reactive to a familiar body type with an unfamiliar face. And so there's some sort of correlation to the uncanny valley that we experience now with AI and robotics. Hmm. And in addition to that, like I was saying, clown behavior is antisocial. We all sort of accept that they can get away with things like uh, slapstick violence or when it was a jester poking fun at the king, even though that would normally get you killed. He was the one that was supposed to make light of it and he was allowed to do so. In fact, you played a very important role in critique of whatever the modern society was. But that kind of like transgressive behavior can make people feel uncomfortable. It puts you sort of on edge because you know they're allowed to do that. But if they're allowed to break social mores and you're not, if they ever diverted from that and went down a different path – they'd be capable of anything. And so, like, that's sort of always in people, in the back of people's mind. Clowns, fools, and harlequin, they've always been symbols of exaggerated behavior. Mischievous scamps who subverted authority for amusement. They'd get away with parody and criticism. The average person couldn't. And so, the trickster behavior is expected. The knowledge that the fool who gets away with this kind of behavior is secretly also completely in control and they know exactly what they're doing is terrifying because they're not just random comedic event they're doing it on purpose and they're subverting social mores on purpose so if they did something bad that's why clowns are scary to most people deep down inside and there are moderate events that made people scared of clowns but i'd like to dispel the idea that John Wayne Gacy is in any way, shape, or form responsible for this, because he's not. John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer and a piece of shit. and then also <laughs> having <happened laughs> to be a Tell me how you really clown. feel. Comple- completely under... Well, I mean, are you going to argue with these? No, no. It was
0: just like, Hitler was a dick. Uh, I don't like him.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. Hard truths. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, he never killed anyone he, as a clown. A menacing clown wasn't his shtick. That wasn't a thing. They found out afterwards that he just happened to be a clown. Those lives were different, completely separate. Like he was a clown at children's parties, no incidents, nothing weird. In his personal life, he was a rapist and a serial killer. <laughs> Those are different things. You know, they associated that because it was so bizarre. And then, of course, the random clown sightings between basically then and, I don't know, a couple of years ago, the night clowns, the crypto clowns that you'd see on the streets all around the world. Which can I can I invest in crypto clowns? Is that the hot new property? (laughs) It's not worth much. It just makes a honking sound. It doesn't really it's not worth any actual money.
0: I do like the idea of their tokens with just clown faces on them.
1: Or what they do in clown college. When you graduate from clown college, your face paint pattern is supposed to be unique to you. And so when you graduate, you have to paint your face paint pattern on an egg, and then they put that on a shelf forever. And that's like for your everyone who's ever. And then they sell that as an NFT. It's too physical to be an NFT. You can't- even t- <laughs> That's not what NFT's for. Because then it's just rare. <laughs> like normal rare. <laughs> I'll paint a picture of the egg digitally, and that'll be an NFT. That's the whole thing behind clowns. But here's a really, really, really interesting story. Ever heard of the Sandown clown?
0: Uh yes, yes. This uh wise old man told me about it. <laughs> okay.
1: I don't know where you're going with that, but I'm curious. That that was
0: you. You told me about it. I hadn't heard about it before, but yeah, you you told me about it. Oh, okay. Please do. All right.
1: right. So it was a strange being encountered by two children vacationing in Lake Common, Sandown, on the Isle of Wight, which, if you don't know, is in the United Kingdom, in May of 1973. Following a sound that they compared to an ambulance siren, these children wandered across the footbridge over a stream and met a being that has been described by them. As a cross between a clown, a robot, and an alien. The Holy Trinity, right? I mean, that's... Uh, yeah. Wild. So, while crossing the bridge, they first saw a blue-gloved hand appear below them, and then a baffling entity emerge. Okay, so this is where you get Stephen King's The Thing, this kind of thing, influenced by stories like this. Which is another reason the clowns are in sort of our cultural lexicon. This creature was approximately six and a half foot tall, and he uh, retrieved a book that he had dropped into the water in front of the kids. When he retrieved the book, he walked several feet away with a strange hopping motion, I'm guessing like uh, Chinese vampires. Yeah. And then he entered a small metallic hut that had no windows. The children began to leave. When he reappeared, about 150 foot away, this time holding a microphone, they heard the sharp siren-like noise again, and then they were terrified. As if it weren't weird enough, when the sound stopped, the creature spoke into the microphone and said, "Are you still here?" Its friendly tone convinced the kids that it was harmless, and they approached it. It was described as uh, being too large for its otherwise thin frame, and its head was shaped like a near perfect sphere. Skin was white had consistency of paper, its hands and feet possessed only three digits apiece, and its face seemed to have been crudely painted onto the surface of its head. Two blue triangles for eyes and a flat brown rectangle for a nose, and its mouth had thin yellow lips shaped like an oval, which did not move when it spoke. Its hair hung down beneath its hat in the sparse, frizzled, reddish-brown, and two wooden antennae stuck out from the sides of its head while more wooden, slat-like antenna exited from its wrist and ankles. Wow, okay. Um, the, the children described it as resembling, resembling a clown costume, with a tall painted hat and a black knob or bobble at the top, and a high-collared suit of red and green. It had blue gloves, but it didn't have shoes. It had trousers and sleeves, but they were long and frilly, so... When they went into the hut, because they followed the creature into the hut, it had walls papered with blue-green dial patterns and all-metallic floors. It contained rough wooden furniture, similar to table and chairs. The clown thing told the children that it was frightened of humans and would not defend itself if it were attacked. It claimed that it drank water from the stream after, quote, cleaning it and gathered wild berries, which it ate. In an odd manner, they said, by thrusting its head forward and somehow moving the berries back and forth between its eyes and then down to its mouth. Not really sure how to visualize that. It could write in English using a pencil and paper. And when asked what its name was, it responded, Sam, all colors. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's kind of like all dressed chips in Canada. (laughs) Uh, When asked if it was human, it said it was not. When asked if it was a ghost, it said, well, not really, but I am in an odd sort of way. They talked to these kids for about a half an hour, and then they walked home to their parents, told their parents of this story, told everyone they knew of this story, and for the rest of their lives, insisted that the story was real. Uh, even the British, uh, at the time it was uh, before, uh, even the British sort of move on investigated it, cops investigated it, nobody found anything, nobody found anything out of the ordinary, but these girls swear that this happened to this day. And I, I do think that this has to be kind of, at least, even subconsciously, somewhere an in inspiration for things like it, and other scary clown archetypes. Yeah, it's so good. I guess my my main question of
0: all of that is that you're mm-hmm. having this conversation with this interdimensional alien clown robot alien thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm, At what mm-hmm. point do you end the conversation? Uh okay, we have nothing left to talk about. Got to got to <laughs> go get lunch, I guess.
1: Well, well, apparently according to the to the kids, he wasn't a very good conversationalist. <laughs> um he they would ask him questions about his origin and like his being in general and he would just say, "Oh, you know." and shrug. <laughs> And so no, they kind of know. got bored with it. You have it. to tell me. Yes, you have to tell me. You exist. Now I need to know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, forget about it.
1: Yeah, that's what he did. And basically they got bored, realized they were never going to learn anything and was like, we got to yeah, listen, we got to get out of here uh, I have to work <laughs> in the morning. And then they went home and the thing was like, OK, and then disappeared and no one ever saw it again. Why would kids make that up? That doesn't sound like a story kids would make up. It really doesn't. I mean, like, especially because nothing happens. Right. There's no follow up. Like, There's no like. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They didn't take me to this grand place or, or show me the, you know, tricks of the world. It's like, oh, he's here. He, he didn't really say anything. He was pretty boring. He was weird. And then we left
1: and he was gone. Especially, yeah, considering like how bizarre the thing looked and his basic just existence is complete and, and so detailed and so weird. And then they were kind of like, they, they just left after half an hour because they were bored. That doesn't sound made up to me. I, I wouldn't, you and I wouldn't make up stories like that when we were kids. I, mine would be much more fantastical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, I think one of the reasons that it's like stood out for so many people is that it. It doesn't make sense that these two girls made it up. Now, I, one of the theories is uh, that phenomenon, uh, the shared hallucination, which um, it may or may not be a thing. But, um, I mean, it, it's easy to sort of, like, hype each other into things. But then in that scenario, you would think that the hype would just get higher. Like, you'd get more – like, it would yeah. be more fantastical. Oh, he took me on the ship and, you know, like – Well, that's what happens with those, like, you
0: those know, things. It's like, oh, we saw a fairy and then that – fairy like turned our clothes pink and then we got on this giant toadstool and we went into the fairy kingdom it's not just like oh he just kind of stood there and he he he
1: couldn't hold a conversation and he was kind of boring right after all these interesting things about him he ends up being boring is not a way that a child's story ends
0: (laughs) yeah that's a weird one
1: that's a weird one. But uh, that's the, that was the more because the the killer clown thing is both uh it's not really a thing. It's just it's a lot of other things. I thought it'd be funny to look into that one, which I did think it influenced some other like killer clowns from outer space and it
0: there there is a thought out there in you know the wild wild conspiracy, you know, paranormal world that clowns are actually some type of Tulpic being from another universe or dimension. Um, That's why we don't really know exactly where they came from or started, and that they they prey on our fears.
1: Uh, Since this is probably the coolest uh, thing you did research on for this whole thing, Jake, why don't you play us out? It's September 26th,
0: 1950. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania police officers Joe Keenan and John Collins are on patrol and they see something something falling from the sky they travel to the area and search around dangling from a telephone pole there appears to be some kind of mysterious ooze it was a sparkly mass six feet in diameter one foot thick at the center and an inch or two near the edge of some kind of purple jelly that had a crystal like substance inside of it and was letting off a mist of some sort. Perhaps it was tricks that were being played on their mind, but it appeared to undulate and to move, seemingly crawling. With its strange nature and possibly of live vibration, the cop duo called for backup. Officers James Cooper and Sergeant Joe Cook arrive and witness this disc of gelatinous mystery as well. As any right-minded policeman would then do, Collins decided to make first contact. He reached out his hand and touches it. Globules stuck to his hand, but quickly dissolved into an odorless sticky scum. As with the goo retrieved by Collins, the rest of the globs seemed to disappear entirely in about 30 minutes after the cops first sighting. The following day, the men in blue addressed the local media, claiming what they saw was indeed a living thing, possibly from outer space. Following its discovery by the Philadelphia police, both the FBI and U.S. Air Force were called in to investigate the quote-unquote flying saucer that had crashed and dissolved without a trace. The incident made a number of headlines at the time, too. The story was distributed nationally by the Associated Press. Though no explanation was ever presented as to the origin of the substance Or whether the officers had misinterpreted the situation Now we jump to the mid-1950s Where Jack Harris, a former vaudevillian and aspiring film distributor Is trying to further break into the movie biz struggling to find an engaging element for the monster movie he wanted to make He asked his friend and fellow Pennsylvanian Irvine H. Milgate for assistance as they talked that evening, the skeleton structure of a meteorite crashing down outside of Philadelphia containing a mystery space jelly evolved. While the connection could never be confirmed by Millgate Harris, nor the further screenwriters of Theodore Simpson and Kay Lineker, no denial was ever put forth, and it is easy to see how these men might have drawn inspiration from the bizarre events a few years earlier. The discovery and description within the film eerily matches the real life account and that's not even mentioning that it was written by film debt and starred mostly Pennsylvania locals all of which probably had heard the story as well now as to what that jelly was no one is still sure but that's not the only incident of some type of mysterious goo falling from space that has occurred throughout the centuries. This phenomenon is known as Pudraser, Welsh for the Rot of the Stars. It was given its name back in the 1600s and has reoccurred sporadically throughout history. This happened in Tasmania, Scotland, as well as Texas... And other places. Cut that last bit out. It's also gone by many different names, um, such as Starfallen, Star Falling, Star Jelly, Star Shot, Star Slime, Star Sluff, Star Slubber, Star Spurt, and Star Slutch. It's been called Caca de Luna, the Moon's excrement. And whether it's extraterrestrial cellular organic matter or some type of melted meteorite or even the uh, jelly-like glands from overducks of frogs and toads, no one can quite put their finger on what this weird and deviating unknown slime is, but it was strange enough to inspire Not only these filmmakers, but generations henceforth. That's all I got. I don't know.
1: Uh, blob out. And if you guys wouldn't mind reading and reviewing, uh, perhaps, I don't know, giving us five stars or whatever, um, that's actually how we get seen. It's not really an ego thing, it's just how the algorithms work, so we'd really appreciate it.
0: Remember, no matter where you go there you are.